Hello, this is Dr. Peng Xianqian, the editor in chief of Harvardism. Thank you for listening to this podcast summarizing the May 2020 issue of the journal. The first article is an editorial by David Hayes, titled "A Paradigm Shift to Address Occupational Health Risks in the EP Laboratory." Despite identification of occupational health challenges of making the interventional EP laboratory a safer environment, safety in the EP laboratory has advanced too slowly. For this reason, the Harvardism Society, in conjunction with the American College of Cardiology, the American Society of Echocardiography, and the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions. Has endorsed the document entitled "SCAI Multi-Society Position Statement on Occupational Health Hazards of the Catheterization Laboratory," shifting the paradigm of healthcare workers' protection. The editorial highlighted the important suggestions made by that position statement. The first original article this month is "Focal Source and the Trigger Mapping in Atrial Fibrillation." Randomized control trial evaluating a novel adjunctive ablation stent strategy by Xiaohang et al. The authors con- conducted a randomized controlled pilot study in 80 patients, evaluating the feasibility and efficacy of focal source and trigger computational algorithm as an adjunct pulmonary vein isolation. In reducing atrial fibrillation recurrence, the results show that the freedom from AF recurrence at 12 months was higher in PVI plus focal source and trigger group versus PVI alone for patients off antiarrhythmics drugs, but did not reach statistical significance. While the difference is statistically insignificant, the data from this pilot study. Can be used to support future larger clinical trials on this technology. Sugarmar et al. wrote the next article titled "Arrhythmia Recurrence is More Common in Females Undergoing Multiple Catheter Ablation Procedures for Persistent Atrial Fibrillation: Time to Close the Gender Gap." This is a multi-center observational study. To determine the long-term arrhythmia outcomes in patients undergoing more than one catheter ablation for persistent atrial fibrillation, they evaluated 281 patients with a mean follow-up of 45 months. The results show that female gender was independently and strongly associated with arrhythmia recurrence in patients undergoing multiple procedures for persistent atrial fibrillation. In spite of fewer reconnected PVs in women, these findings suggest that new approaches will be needed to close the gender gap of recurrence rate after ablation. Next up is predicting atrial fibrillation using a combination of genetic risk score and clinical risk factors by Okubo et al. The authors screened a cohort of 540 AF patients and 520 non-AF controls for single nucleotide polymorphism, or SNPs, previously associated with atrial fibrillation, by genome-wide association studies, or GWAS. 
They identified five SNPs associated with AF. There was a 4.92-fold difference in AF risk between the highest and lowest weighted genetic risk scores calculated using these five SNPs. The predictive logistic model, model constructed using a combination of weighted genetic risk score and AF clinical risk factors, including age, body mass index, sex, and hypertension, demonstrated even better discrimination of atrial fibrillation. This novel predictive model of combined AF-associated SNPs and known clinical risk factors can accurately stratify AF risk in the Japanese population. This score can be useful in making early diagnosis of asymptomatic atrial fibrillation and prevent its complications. The next article is titled Oral Anticoagulant and Reduced Risk of Dementia in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, a population-based cohort study by Monkong et al. They conducted a retrospective cohort study using UK primary care data. Among 84,000 patients with atrial fibrillation, 35,000 patients were anticoagulated, while 49,000 were not. Over a mean follow-up of 5.9 years, anticoagulation was associated with a lower risk of dementia or cognitive impairment compared to no anticoagulation, with a hazard ratio of 0.85 to 0.95. No significant differences in dementia risk was observed for direct oral anticoagulants versus warfarin. Dual anticoagulant and antiplatelet therapy was associated with higher risk of dementia or cognitive impairment with no treatment with a hazard ratio of 1.05 to 1.31. These findings suggest that oral anticoagulation therapy can reduce dementia and cognitive dysfunction, but dual therapy has opposite effects. Prospective randomized clinical trials are warranted to confirm these observations. Coming up is an article by Ducey et al. titled Prognostic Impact of Atrial Rhythm and Dimension in Patients with Structural Heart Disease Undergoing Cardiac Sympathetic Denervation for Ventricular Arrhythmias. Between 2009 and 2018, 91 patients underwent left or bilateral cardiac sympathetic denervation. The median follow-up was 14 months. The authors found that in patients with structural heart diseases undergoing cardiac sympathetic denervation, left atrial volume index predicts death or orthotopic heart transplant. Atrial arrhythmia burden already low at baseline, was unchanged after bilateral cardiac sympathetic denervation while the need for atrial pacing increased. An implication is that left cardiac sympathetic denervation does not increase atrial arrhythmias. However, because of a low baseline and atrial arrhythmia burden, it is unclear if denervation can be used to control atrial arrhythmias in patients with structural heart diseases. Bob Haya et al. wrote the next article titled Esophageal Temperature Dynamics During High Power Short Duration Posterior Wall Ablation. 
Luminal esophageal temperature was studied in 16 patients undergoing LA posterior wall ablation at 50 watts for 60 seconds. The authors found that left atrial posterior wall ablation can result in severe esophageal temperature increases. Significant luminal esophageal temperature increase will be undetected when lesions are greater than 20 mm away from a temperature sensor. Luminal esophageal temperature increase was observed with consecutive lesions placed less than 20 mm apart within 60 seconds. This study calls for careful esophageal temperature monitoring during high-power, short-duration posterior wall ablation. The next article is titled Long-Term Transesophageal Echocardiography Follow-Up After Percutaneous Left Atrial Appendage Closure by Staubach et al. The authors prospectively studied a total of 63 patients. Median time from implantation until long-term TEE was 3.1 years. Major peri-device leaks were de detected in two patients. Device thrombus was found in eight patients. Of five patients who suffered an ischemic stroke during long-term follow-up, one showed a peri-device leak of greater than five millimeter. None of the patients with detected device thrombus developed a stroke. The authors conclude that peri-device leaks and device thrombi continue to occur during long-term follow-up following left atrial appendage closure. The clinical impact of these late complications remain unclear. Next up is a paper titled Coronary Venoplasty During Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Device Implantations, Acute Results and Clinical Outcomes by Boy et al. Of 422 consecutive CRT recipients treated between 2012 and 2018, 29, or 6.9% of patients, required percutaneous coronary venoplasty, which was successful in 21 cases. No complications occurred. Over a median follow-up of 33 months, no difference in lead performance, CRT response, two-year survival, were observed compared to the control group. The authors conclude that percutaneous coronary venoplasty during CRT device implant is typically successful, safe, and associated with long-term clinical outcomes comparable to patients who did not need venoplasty. This is an important technique to optimize LV lead placement and maximize CRT response. Coming up is an article by Minier et al. titled Age at Diagnosis of Brugada Syndrome, Influence on Clinical Characteristics and the Risk of Arrhythmia. The authors enrolled 1,600 French patients and divided them into three groups according to age. During median follow-up of 5.5 years, 91 patients experienced an arrhythmic event including 7 or 13% of patients younger than 17, 80 or 6% of patients between 17 and 59 years old and middle-aged patients, and 4 or 1% in the oldest patients. 
Annual event rates were 2.1%, 1%, and 0.3% respectively. The authors conclude that the age undiagnosis changes the clinical pre uh, presentation of Brugada syndrome. Children present the highest risk of sudden cardiac death, which is an argument for early and extensive family screening. The oldest patients present the lowest risk of sudden cardiac death. This study helps to risk stratify patients with Brugada syndrome according to age. Herman et al. wrote the next article titled Improving Long QT Syndrome Diagnosis by Polynomial-Based T-Wave Morphology Characterization. The authors used a retrospective cohort consisting of 333 patients with Long QT Syndrome and 345 genotype-negative family members. They found that baseline QTC cutoffs were specific but had low sensitivity in diagnosing long QT syndrome. The model with T-way morphology features, QTC, age, and sex, had the best overall accuracy of 84%. The authors conclude that the T-way morphologies can be characterized by fitting a linear combination of the first two Hermite-Gauss polynomials. Adding T-wave morphology characterization to H6 and QTC in a support vector machine model improves long QT syndrome diagnosis. These data indicate that the T-wave morphology can be described with mathematic equations and improve the diagnosis of long QT syndrome. Next up is outcomes for castor ablation of the anterosepto and midseptal accessory pathways in pediatric patients by Kofash et al. They report 255 EP procedures in 223 patients, including 178 anterosepto, 72 midseptal pathways. Acute success rate was 87% with 18% recurrences. Significant complications occurred in 1.2% of the procedures, though no patient suffered from complete heart block. The authors conclude that the ablation of anteroseptal and midseptal pathways remains challenging. While both ablation energy modalities are equally successful, cryoablation may be associated with a higher chance of recurrence. Recurrences and repeated procedures may be anticipated to minimize risk to normal AV conduction during ablation in these regions. Levesk et al. wrote the next paper titled Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillators and Patient Reported Outcomes in Adults with Congenital Heart Disease, an international study. They also study a total of 3,188 3, patients from 15 countries including 107 with ICDs and 3,081 weight-matched controls without ICDs. Defibrillators were implanted for primary and secondary prevention in 38 and 62% respectively. Those with secondary compared to primary prevention indications had a significantly lower quality of life score. The authors conclude that in an international cohort of adults with congenital heart disease, ICDs were associated with a more threatening illness perception 
with a lower quality of life in those with secondary compared to primary prevention indications. However, marked geographic variability in patient reported outcomes was observed. These data are important in understanding the psychological impact of ICD in patients with congenital heart diseases. Next up is mechanism and magnitude of bipolar electrogram directional sensitivity, characterizing underlying determinants of bipolar amplitude by Gaeta et al. Using computational modeling and clinical data to establish the mechanism magnitude of directional sensitivity of bipolar electrogram is the purpose of this study. The authors studied a clinical data database of 18,000 electrograms recorded from the left atrium of 10 atrial fibrillation patients during pacing. A theoretical model was derived describing the effect of changing angle of instance electrode spacing and the conduction velocity on the local activation time difference between a pair of electrodes. The authors found that addition, directional sensitivity occurs because of bipolar amplitude is reduced when component unipolar electrogram overlap, such that neither electrode is indifferent. At the electrode spacing of clinical casters, this is predicted to occur regardless of caster orientation. This suggests that bipolar directional sensitivity can be lessened but not overcome by recently introduced casters with additional rotated electrode pairs. The next paper is distinct calcium commodulin dependent serum protein kinase domains control cardiac sodium channel memory expression and focal adhesion anchoring by Buriat et al. In the heart, the protein cask or calcium commodulin dependent serum protein kinase negatively regulates the main cardiac sodium channel, NAV 1.5 by preventing its anterograde trafficking. The authors performed a study in adult red cardiomyocytes unraveled the mechanisms of cask-mediated negative sodium current regulation. The authors demonstrate that the multi-modular structure of cask confers the ability to simultaneously interact with several targets within cardiomyocytes. This study is the first to identify sodium channel partner with the potential to control ion channels delivery to adhesion points in cardiomyocytes. Mayberg et al. wrote the next paper titled Static Ganglion Stimulation Causes Spatial Temporal Changes of Ventricular Repolarization in PIC. The authors measured the ventricular repolarization at multiple sites in five anesthetized PICs before and after left and right static ganglion stimulation. They found that left static ganglion stimulation caused a biphasic response in repolarization in the lateral and the posterior wall of LV. Right static ganglion stimulation shortened the repolarization mainly in the anterior LV wall, but the effects were smaller than the left static ganglion stimulation. The authors conclude the left static ganglion stimulation first prolongs and then shortens repolarization. The effect of left static ganglion stimulation was prominent in the posterior and lateral 
not the anterior LV wall. The heterogeneous response may underline the mechanisms of ventricular arrhythmias during steroid ganglion activation. Coming up is a paper by Kumar et al. titled Skin Sympathetic Nerve Activity as a Biomarker for Syncopal Episodes During Tail-Table Test. The authors recorded skin sympathetic nerve activity in 50 patients with a history of neurocardiogenic syncope undergoing a tail-table test. They found that the patients with syncope do not have elevated the sympathetic tone at the baseline or during the tail-table test except immediately before syncope when there is transient surge of skin sympathetic nerve activity followed by sympathetic withdrawal. An implication is that preventing these transient sympathetic surges might be useful in controlling syncope. That article was followed by two contemporary reviews on pacing in vasovagal syncope, summarizing recent findings on this topic. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pen Chen.